Welcome to the North Star Broadcast. I'm your host, Christine Bergstrom. I'm a certified clinical hypnotherapist and breathwork facilitator with an immense love and passion for all things related to spirit, consciousness, and the path of the awakening. On this podcast, we'll be exploring all of this and more through sharing spiritually transformative, out-of-body, and near-death experiences. We will learn and grow together through inspiring conversation. Thank you for being here. Hello and welcome. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Dr. Lottie Valentine. She is a naturopath, medical doctor, an author, an evidential psychic medium, a medical medium, an ancestral healer, a spiritual teacher, an international keynote speaker. She also is the host of her own podcast called Dr. Lottie Science with Soul. She's had not one, but two near-death experiences, which would set her on a path of awakening, ignite her spiritual gifts, and lead her to attend med school at the age of 54. I'm so excited to have her here today. So welcome, Dr. Lottie. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to hear your story. It's an incredible one. So I'm pretty much just going to turn it over to you. I'll have you pick up wherever you feel is relevant, and we'll just go from there. All right, let's start from the from the beginning. So I had two near-death experiences, and the first one happened after my third child was born. So I had two boys already that were six years old and three and a half years old, and The birth of my daughter itself was traumatic because she was born between a 7.4 and a 7.2 earthquake. So we headed to the to the hospital, which was in Eastern Anaheim in California. So people who have been to Disneyland knows where Anaheim is. But this hospital was centered in the eastern part. So right before the desert. And the earthquake was centered in the desert. So we were kind of the first town that was the closest to that epicenter. So I'm on the labor table, I'm contracting like three minutes apart, and this 7.4 earthquake hits. And it's one of the moments in my life when I thought I was going to die. And the there were the windows like from the floor to the ceiling. And I'm lying on this table, everybody's leaning over onto the table to try to hold me still so I won't levitate off the table. And you know how they have in um, in the hospitals, they have those metal trays with all the metal instruments and they were just levitating like up and down. It was like a movie, like a bad movie, like a disaster movie. And as I'm lying on this table, so I'm lying on the table, I can see all the ceiling tiles. And the only thing I could think of was we are going to be buried in this rubble because all the, the ceiling tiles are going to fall in. We lost the power, everything just went quiet and the rumbling and this hospital was built on rollers. So the whole hospital was was rolling back and forth. And I figured, well, the windows are gonna cave in, the ceiling tiles are gonna cave in. And I never thought I was gonna die this way. This is, that was the thought that went through my mind. And it was so bad, my labor actually stopped. So when you're running from the tiger in the jungle, you're, you don't have time to give birth. So it's going to stop temporarily. 
while you get yourself to safety. So after about half an hour, my labor kicked back up and my daughter was born. And then shortly after her birth, and they gave me the baby to hold, I was in excruciating pain and I just bent over backwards and just yelled for my husband. I was like, take the baby, take the baby. And I had all this, all these blood clots come out and they were massaging my uterus, trying to contract it. Would they have done something different? Um, could they have done like a DNC or something like that? Probably, but we were in the middle of an earthquake, right? We didn't even have power in the hospital. We were running on generators at this point and one aftershock after another. So they put me on this IV drip to contract the uterus to help squeeze the blood clots out. And also while I was giving birth, I told the midwife, I said, check that placenta because it felt like somebody was ripping off a piece of duct tape on the inside of my uterus. And I had already had two births. So I knew that there was something that wasn't normal about this birth. And I remember the midwife holding up the placenta and flipping it back and forth. And she said, well, it looks whole. I can't see anything missing. So they kept me in the hospital an extra day. And then they said, okay, well, things seem good now. It's a normal amount of bleeding after birth. And they sent me on my way. Well, 10 days after birth, I had a lot of pain inside my uterus. So imagine like swallowing a bowling ball. This is my best description. And that bowling ball is sitting at the bottom of your pelvis and it's very heavy. And so it aches and it's a lot of pain and it goes down your legs. And that's what I was experiencing. I couldn't figure out why I was having so much pain because I hadn't had pain with my other births like that. And then I started hemorrhaging and I had this very large blood clot, the size of a man's large fist. So a lot of blood came out and we went to the ER and they, they examined me and they said, well, not much blood is coming out right now. It could have been a second lining that came out and they sent me on my way. No blood work, no ultrasound, nothing. Then the next evening, the same thing. I hemorrhaged again, same amount of blood. We called the hospital because it was 930 at night. The, the boys were already asleep. The baby was asleep. My parents were there from Sweden because I was born and raised in Europe, in Sweden, and they were helping with the kids. And we said, and I yelled to my husband as he's on the phone with the hospital, I'm not going, they're not going to do anything because now I'm not bleeding anymore. And it was decided that I should see the doctor in Huntington Beach, California, where we lived at the time. So Friday morning comes around, we go to the doctor, same thing again manual inspection. Well, not much blood. It seems to be coming out right now. It could have been another lining coming out. And I'm thinking, how many linings, how many linings can you shed? Right? No blood work, no ultrasound, nothing. And he sent me on my way. And then again, that afternoon, hemorrhage again. So we go back to the ER. They come in, they do another manual inspection and they say, well, not much bleeding is going on right now. So they leave me in this room and closed the door. And I didn't have, this is in 1992. I had no bell to ring. I'm just lying on this table. And eventually I start bleeding. And all the only thing I can think of is, wow, this is good because I'm finally bleeding in the ER. They're finally going to figure out something is wrong. And all of a sudden this nurse comes in to check on me. I think the spirit world literally sent her because everything is just perfect timing for me to survive this ordeal. So she comes in, she opens the door and her jaw just drops. She's just like, oh, like horrified. 
<clears throat> at the at what she's seeing because there's so much blood on the table and like all these papers you know how that paper on the tables in the hospitals so she quickly cleans that up and I can hear the call on the loudspeaker OBGYN stat to the ER OBGYN stat to the ER so I'm just thinking great they finally realized something is really wrong and this middle-aged doctor comes running in and he has a younger physician in tow and again, they do a manual inspection. And as they're doing this manual inspection, another large blood clot comes out. So at this point, the doctor, when he came in, his, his first question was, how much have you been bleeding? And I said, this is my third day of hemorrhaging. So he already understood that I had lost a lot of blood, thank God. So he was, you know, he had see, probably seen this before. He was middle-aged. And all I could think was, I'm so glad they sent this doctor that's older because he'll know what's wrong because he will have seen thousands of patients in his in his work and he'll, he will have seen this problem before so they do this manual inspection I tr and the blood another large blood clot comes up and I try to sit up and tell him that I'm not feeling too good and right away he knows he already understands what's going on so he just pushes me back onto the table and they start uh, raising the tables or lowering the table so my head goes towards the floor my feet goes towards the ceiling and at this point, my eyes are closed because I can't keep them open any, anymore. And I can hear the room fill with all the medical personnel. I can feel the nurse on my left trying to place an IV. You know, today they place IVs as a precaution. So they have access to your veins because once you start going into shock, they can't access the veins anymore because they collapse. So I'm thinking, what's taking her so long? Why can't she get that IV in? Because I didn't have any medical training back then, right? So I didn't understand. And then the nurse on my right is quoting my blood pressure. And at this point, I just feel like I'm falling. So imagine jumping out of an airplane and just free fall towards the earth. And I think part of that is that experience is just part of the blood pressure dropping. It's just this feeling of crashing. And the nurse on my right yells out 50 over 15, hurry. And that was my blood pressure. So at this point, they know, you know, you're going below a support, a blood pressure supporting the heart rate. So they know they, they we're talking seconds now to get to save this person. And I'm thinking, well, it's taking them so long. And then shortly after she yells out the 50 over 15, I know that I'm dying. And this experience was very different from that experience in the earthquake when I thought I was going to die. You know, people who have been in car accidents or almost in a car accident, you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is it, I'm going to die. But this was a knowing. I was completely aware of the fact that I was dying at this point. So I'm lying on this table. I'm a complete atheist. I don't believe in the afterlife. I don't believe in angels. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in anything have a completely materialistic worldview. And at this point, what do I do? I pray to God to save my life. So I say, I have three children under the age of six. Please let me live. And they need a mother. And it was shortly after that, that I was just pulled out of my body. And it happens so quickly because one second you're inside your body or a millisecond or a billion second. And the next... And, and the next second you're outside and it happens so fast, that transition that uh, it's, it's, it's sort of incomprehensible to the brain to understand that transition because it's so fast, it's just instantaneous. But then I find myself 
floating above my body, maybe three or five feet above my body. But as I'm outside my body, my first thought is, how can I be outside my body and still be me? This is not supposed to happen. I had no belief system that this was even possible. You know, for me, it was you die, it's black, you're gone, and that's it. There is there is nothing else. So here I am outside my body, but also there is this knowledge that there is no time on the other side. So you have access to past, present, and future all at the same time. There is no time, but there is also just this unconditional love and peace of being in that state. There is no fear of, of anything. And as I'm hovering in this state, all of a sudden I get sucked back in. And my best description of that getting sucked back in is for people who have seen the movie Santa Claus with Tim Allen, when he delivers presents and he goes through the chimney and he just sort of gets sucked back down in through the chimney that's the feeling. It was like a giant vacuum cleaner or something. It just, it, it was the suction to the feeling of going back in the body. So it gets sucked back into my body, which was different because when I, I mean, you, you leave the body and it's just a split second, you're inside and a split second, you're outside. But there was this suction energy to getting sucked back in, which is interesting. Um, and then that next morning, I, when I was, I was still in the hospital, and that next morning, I could hear my sister-in-law in the left corner of the ceiling. And I could hear her say, everything's going to be okay. And she had just passed away 10 days earlier. And so all of a sudden, I could hear the spirit world. And I was I had been outside my body. So I'm lying in this hospital bed, um, you know, with a pounding headache and cold hands and feet because I'd lost so much blood. And I'm thinking, I can't, I don't know what to make out of what the experience I had the day before. But I think the nurse that came to check on me was aware of these experiences. I had never heard of a near-death experience. I didn't know what had happened. And she said, did anything unusual happen yesterday? Did you have any unusual experience? And I said, no, no, nothing, nothing at all. Because I was petrified that if I shared what had happened, they would lock me up and, and think, you know, she has some mental issue and we got to keep her here in the hospital and I'll never see my kids again. So I was afraid of even sharing my story at that time. So then I get sent home and um, I, then I get really sick. So it took me a good six months before I even left the house. And I know my parents changed their tickets back to Sweden twice. And then they left. And then my mother-in-law came. He was, we had constant help for two or three months because I barely have any memories. I just slept a lot because I'd lost so much blood. And then pretty much sat in a rocking chair until Christmas and just slowly, slowly started to build back my body. And I had been super healthy, you know, going into this, I was 34 years old, I had just gotten a degree in nutrition, uh, was just in perfect health. And then um, we all got really sick that Christmas. And now the baby is six months old. And we didn't have any insurance at the time, because my husband's company had gotten bought, everybody got laid off, we we're in our early 30s. And we can't afford Cobra for a family of five, right? So three kids and two adults. So I said, no, just we're just going to wait, just wait, take take this job and everything will work out. We all get the flu. Everybody gets antibiotics and everybody gets better. Eight days later, I'm getting sicker. So I go back into this walking clinic because we just went to a walking clinic because we didn't have a regular physician. 
And they said, weren't you just here? And I said, yes, but you know, now everything is worse. And they're, you know, they're saying, yeah, you're way worse. So they take a blood sample and they come back in the room and they said, do you have AIDS or leukemia? And I said, well, I hope neither. This is what happened to me. And I hadn't gotten a blood transfusion um, because I spoke to the doctor. As soon as they revived me, the doctor said, we need to give you blood. And I said, wait, do you have to give me blood? Because everybody back then was getting AIDS that were getting, or not everybody, but a lot of people were getting AIDS because we didn't have a way of checking the blood back then. And so he said, we'll see what we can do. And then they gave me all these supplements and medications. And so it took longer for me to build all that blood back up, but I also didn't have a blood transfusion. So I said, well, I probably don't have AIDS because I didn't get the blood transfusion. And they said, well, you're really sick. You have to go to the ER because you have no immune system. And I said, well, I don't have insurance. So if I go to the ER, I'm never going to get insurance. And my husband is, we're almost to the point where we're going to get insurance. So they gave me, you know, more medication, sent me on my way. And somehow I managed to get out of that pickle and I started to get better. And then I started bruising. So I would get these big bruises. So I, I bumped into the baby's changing table. Something that would give you a bruise the size of a nickel gave me and a massive bruise that spanned my entire hip that was purple and red. And I was getting sick again, kind of, you know, with a deep cough, beginning pneumonia. And I knew I had to go to the doctor. And at this point, we, my husband had changed jobs three times in that year because he had been a regional manager. And so in order to support the family, he was just taking the best job he could get because obviously we, we needed an income. And so it took three job hops to get to the salary and to get to the company and the type of job he was looking for. And now we were going to get insurance July 1st and it's May. So I got about six weeks to go. So I go to this doctor and the bruise is so bad. And I said, well, I, obviously I understand something is, is wrong with my blood because you don't get bruises like this unless something is wrong. And I'm getting pneumonia and it's May and we live in California. You don't typically get pneumonia in May unless there is something else underlying condition. So he sees that bruise and he first thinks that my husband is abusing me. So he looks at, he rips, literally rips the t-shirts off my children to look at on their bodies to see if there's any bruises. And I kept telling him, I'm telling you the truth. This is what happened. And this is, I understand what's going on. My father was a doctor. My mom worked. She was a hospital floor administrator. I was around doctors my whole childhood. I understand this is a blood issue, but I'm getting insurance in six weeks. So I'm not going to go to the ER and I'm not going to do a lab test because I'm going to have a pre-existing condition and I'm never going to get insurance. And I survived this long. I said, I'm so much better now. You should have seen me six months ago. I, I got myself here. I drove myself here and I brought my children with me. Something I wouldn't even have been able to do six months ago. So again, gave me a lot of medication. So this was my existence. And so now later, um, years later, when I fessed up to the doctor and told him what had happened, he said, you probably had a pla idiopathic aplastic anemia, which is a bone marrow suppression. So it suppresses the platelets and the white blood cells and the red blood cells. So you're basically are low on all the blood cells, which makes sense because my I didn't have an immune system. So I was getting sick all the time. I was uh, exhausted. So I didn't have enough red blood cells to carry the oxygen. And I was bruising all the time. And so you have a low platelet count. And this was just my existence for the next couple of years. And if I put my knee on the floor, 
I would get a bruise just from resting my knee on the floor to tie my children's shoes. So I became a very good squatter. I would squat. I still squat. <laughs> it's a habit now. But it took um, a good six years for me to come out of that. And for the first couple of years, I couldn't even stand up to cook for my children. So I had a stool in the kitchen and I would sit on the stool. And I remember my 90-year-old something grandma had this tall stool next to her stove. So that's what I did. I got this tall stool so I could sit and flip pancakes for the kids and things like that. Because I couldn't stand up um, that long because I would get dizzy and I would faint. And there was always this feeling of my soul not having merged back in with the body. So it always felt like my soul was trying to leave. It was always like several times a day, I would say, nope, nope, we're not leaving. We're staying here. And this feeling of, no, 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 come back, come back, soul, come back into the body. And there was a separation of the soul and the body, right? Now I'm just one with my body. So, but that took a good six years before I, I, I that soul was merged back in. So that was my existence. And I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would feel dizzy and my head would be pounding because that just wasn't enough blood. And I would take my head off the pillow, put my legs up and do things like that to try and get the circulation going. So my second NDE happened in the middle of the night during this period of healing. And for a long time, I struggled with, with the evidence. So here I am having another experience where I'm leaving my body, which is very different from my first experience. And I will share it in a moment. But that feeling of how do I prove it? Now, the first near-death experience happened in the emergency room. So I could prove that I was on the brink of death, right? And they saved my life. But the second one happens in the middle of the night. Where is that? How can I prove it? But then after many, many years, so this was in 1994, and it wasn't until around 2013 that I came to terms with it and learned about spiritually transformative experiences, which you don't have to be near death. And actually a near death experience, many people think that you have to be dead or you're clinically dead, but the most near death experiences happens close to death. You're close to death. So, and spiritually transformative experiences can happen anytime, right? And, and they can be very similar to a near-death experience. But I finally came to terms with it because it's not about the experience itself and what we call it, but it is what happens to that person as a result of having that experience. And so now I'm going to share my, my second near-death experience, which is very different from my first one. And I always joke that I didn't get the full effect of the first one. And that's why this second one had to happen because it's the second one that really activated my life path and is driving my work still today. So in the middle of the night, I wake up, I get the pounding headache, I take my head off the pillow and I get sucked out of my body just like I did the first time. But this time I'm traveling through darkness. So imagine Star Wars, you're flying through universe, tumbling through darkness in space. And then I get to this place that I call the mid station only because there was an awareness of you could go higher. And there was awareness that there were floors below me, so to speak. So if you go into um, a skyscraper and there are a hundred floors and you get off at the 50th floor, then 
you know that there are floors above you, you know there are floors below you. So it's that kind of a sensation. And I call it the bouncing station only because they sent me back and I did not have a choice. So some people that have these experiences are given a choice. Do you want to stay? Do you want to go back? There was no choice. I, that's why I call it the bouncing station because you get there and they're like, oh, no, no, you can't go any higher. We're going to send you back. So I get to this place and I hear the most beautiful music, music you can't even make in this dimension. And I'm wondering where this music is coming from. And I look to the right and I see this little log cabin. And I just think it's funny what we see. I see a log cabin and it might be because that would make me comfortable because I was born and raised in Sweden with little log cabins. <laughs> kind of looked like a, a sauna almost, like a little Swedish sauna log cabin. So I open the door, I look inside, but it's empty. So then I look to the left. And there is a mirror image of the same log cabin on my left. And again, I open the door, I look inside, but it's empty. But then I become aware of this growing white light that comes from behind me and starts to envelope me. And as I turn around into this light, which I can only describe as fog with a spotlight in it, because it's, it extends into infinity. So when you look into fog, all you see is white. And it was that kind of a feeling. You're just enveloped. You're in the light. And the music is coming from the light. But in the light, there is an outline of angels. And the music is coming from the angels. But I don't, again, I don't believe in angels. So, you know, what am I experiencing? But the light itself is God or source. I don't care what name you give it but it is what we come from. We are part of that light. It is part, it is like the creation and we are creation. We are part of that. There is no separation of, of God or source or us. We are part of that. We, as I'm saying, we, we tend to think of heaven or God is out there and we're down here, but we are part of that. And that's that light source is we carry that light within us. That is unconditional love. And when we die, we return to that light. And so it is who we are. We are love and light. And we carry that within us. And I would say the world and, and life is built around love and light. The more we give, um, the, the more love we generate ourselves, the more love we get in return. And the world is really built on love, but sometimes it's hard when we go through life to remember that because we have emotions and, and struggles to deal with. But then I become aware of two spirit guides and the spirit guide on the right communicates with the other spirit guide to the left and diagonally in front of me. And he says, what is she doing here? She can't be here. She has to go back. And I say, no, 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 wait a second how can I be outside my body and still be me? Because this has been on my mind now for two years already. And the spirit guide on my left says, well, if I told you, you wouldn't remember. So there's some kind of control mechanism, what we get to remember when we have these experiences. But then he said, you will remember this. But then it is as if I'm standing on the moon and I'm looking down on the earth, but around the earth, there is what I call a silvery glittery fishnet. And I grew up in, in Sweden and, you know, the archipelago has about 25,000 islands 
And in the summers, I spent time on this island about three months every year with no electricity, no running water. And my grandmother would lay fishnets in the ocean to catch fish for the family to eat. And I finally graduated to be the little rower of the boat, which was an honor because I had three older brothers and I waited for that moment when I would get to row the boat. And so I would row this little boat for my grandmother. And when she lifted those nets up and out of the ocean in the early morning sun, when the sun hit the fishnet, those water droplets on the fishnet would sparkle in the sunlight. So this is 1994. There was no internet or Google to Google these things. So to me, it looked like a fishnet around the earth. And the spirit guide said, everything on earth is connected to each other. And everything on earth is connected up to this grid. And with that information, I get sent back to earth. And I would say that is what is still driving everything that I do today and my work today, because uh, we are truly connected um, more, more than we think. We're connected through the DNA. We're connected through this grid um, or the, you know, the, the invisible grid, as I call it. And I work a lot with ancestral healing now, and you can see um, the connection that we have to our ancestors and how certain patterns repeat within the families, whether you have met that person or not. And so it's fascinating how that experience in 1994 is still driving my work today. And I spent years trying to figure out why is there no time on the other side? I combed the San Francisco Public Library because we lived in the suburb of San Francisco for 12 years. And I went through the entire life. I had stacks of books next to my bed. And this was in 2003 to 2004. And I was trying to find any information that could talk about this grid that I had seen. And after a year of reading about a book a week, I gave up. I said, that's that's it. I, I can't find it. Maybe there is information, but I'm not looking in the right area of the, of the library. It, was, it wasn't like I could ask the public librarian for help either. Do you know about that, that grid around the earth? So I just read a lot of books. I read physics books. I read Stephen Hawkins books. Why is there no time on the other side? And, and then in 2004, I said, that's it. I'm healed. I'm, I'm, I give up. And I just put it all to rest. And I figured someday that grid will make sense. But during these 12 years, there was this opening of awareness to the spirit world. And I would start to hear things from the spirit world. I would know people who had passed away. So I can share some of these stories. So between my first and second near-death experience, um, so I was one year out and my uncle passed away in Sweden and we were here in the United States. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and I knew my uncle was in the ceiling at the end of the bed. And he was looking down. I couldn't see him, um, but I knew it was him. And he was communicating with me telepathically. And he said he had passed on to the other side. He just came to say goodbye. He just wanted to let me know. And I mean, when I look back at some of these events, I think it's just um, a way for the spirit world to train me. It was my training wheels to um, understand that opening. And I had to have all these different types of experiences to understand I have an ability to connect with the spirit world and I can hear them. And sometimes now I, I, I see them. Um, so I, you know, I knew it was my uncle and I figured my mom would call me the next morning and tell me because it was her brother. Nobody called me. 
So I said, wow, that's so strange. Nobody's calling me. And another day went by, nobody called me. Finally, on the third day, my mom calls and she says, hey, I'm just checking in. How is everything going? Blah, blah, blah. And then she said, I have something sad to share with you. And I said, I know your brother passed away three days ago. And it was this dead silence. And she knows, how did you know? And I said, he was here. So at that point, you know, it started getting confirmation. And then as these 12 years went by, I would get more and more confirmations. Um, I knew my father was passing away. I knew that relatives were sick and had to go to the hospital. Um, I saw an accident. An accident was going to happen with two of the kids in my car. And I woke up that morning and I said, um, you two are in the car. And I was driving them to San Francisco at the time because they were students at the San Francisco Ballet School. <clears throat> And we lived in East Bay. So every day I would have to drive them in because they were too young to take the subway system. And I said there, we had a van and I said, there's a big scratch on the van door and on the passenger side, you two are in the car and um, I'm leaving a note on a black sedan car on the windshield. But I don't understand where are the people that drove that car? Why am I, why am I not seeing other people if they were, if it's a bad accident and they were hurt, I would have seen ambulances or police or something. But I did, I just saw the scratch, the two kids in the car, my son in the front seat, my daughter in the back seat. And then I'm leaving a note on a black, on the windshield. So we figured out there's only one intersection. When we get off the Bay Bridge, we get down to the surface streets, we're going to turn left, that there's oncoming traffic that we could possibly get hit on the right-hand side of the car. About two weeks go by. Every day we get to this intersection, my kids' noses are pressed up against the window. Mom, the coast is clear. Nobody's coming. And then, you know, we were fine. And then we were in the bookstore bookstore in Walnut Creek in East Bay, San Francisco, where we lived in that area at the time. And we're coming out of the bookstore and there's a big truck offloading books. And I'm trying to get onto this very narrow little street. Our car's trying to get into this parking lot. And as I exit the parking lot, and I'm making a right-hand turn onto this narrow street. There's a black sedan car parked, the last car in that row on the street. And as I make a right turn onto the street, the right-hand side of my car scrapes the, the left rear fender of this black sedan car. So at this point, I know exactly what happened, right? So I know what that scratch is going to look like. So I get out of my car, walk around the car. And just throw my hands up to the to the heavens and just and just start laughing, and people were just staring at me because they must have thought I was the kookiest lady they had ever seen. Here is this woman laughing hysterically at her accident, right? The black scratch on my car, but I was just so relieved that it was finally over because it had been two weeks of worrying about are we you know what's going to happen. So, of course, nobody was driving the car and I'm leaving this note on the windshield of the black sedan car. So this was and it's such a good some of these stories are so good because there is evidence and, you know, I'm sharing it with other people. But I would often write down things. I, I had a little log. I would write things down when I saw things or I got messages so that, you know, a couple of days later, when this became true, I could go back and look in my notebook and say, yeah, I'm not having a deja vu. I wrote it down three days ago, you know, and it could be, it could be just images that I would get. I could hear things um, or I sometimes, uh, you know, I could have a dream about something and I would write it down. So it, the messages came in all different ways. And after 12 years of 
you know, writing everything down and having all these different experiences, I finally learned to trust in the spirit world. But it took me it it took me 12 years to to really trust that because I was so scientific. I had such a hard time um, trusting that it was something that was really happening and the the spirit world really is there and we don't die. It's just our physical body that dies, but our soul survives and we're always there. We're always present. And it was after 12 years that I received the messages in my living room because I had decided I should go back to work. The kids are teenagers and I always wanted to work in the healing profession, but uh, just never did it because I moved to the United States and um, the English barrier was so great in the beginning. So I was at my computer and I saw this degree and it said naturopathic doctor. And then I realized it was a real medical school. And I was like, oh my God, I can't do that. I can't go to med school. I'm already in my 40s. I got to do all the prereqs, all the chemistry and all that. So I closed my computer and I said, that's it. I can't, That that's not possible. The mind says, the logical mind says, don't do it. And even if I did all the prereqs, that was no guarantee I was ever going to be admitted at my age into medical school. So I closed my computer and walked towards the kitchen. And as I did so, I became aware of a spirit guide. And he said, no, you have to go to medical school and become a doctor. And you are to combine East and West, which I understood that is kind of what naturopathic medicine is, because we learn acupuncture, homeopathy, botanical medicine, and pharmaceutical medicine. So we have a bigger toolbox in a sense. Uh, we have more options to treat people. So we get a lot of people that may have sensitivities to pharmaceuticals or are not getting better with, with that option. So I got the message. I had to be a doctor. I had to combine East and West. I was to bring messages and healing to the people. And I'm like, what messages? <laughs> what are you talking about? And then they said, you have to write two books. No, wait, three. And I said, what book? What, what book am I to, you know, what am I supposed to write about? And, you know, English is not even my native language. What are you talking about? And they said, for now, just focus on med school. That's step one. So within a week, I was enrolled in prereq classes at the community college. And I had to start from the beginning because I didn't have any science classes. I was a business and computer science major out of college. I was a programmer and systems analyst uh, working for IBM uh, after I graduated uh, from Boston University. And so I had to start with advanced placement biology from like a high school class at the community college just to get into the prereq classes. And then I had to take, you know, biology one, biology two, and then chem one, chem two, OCHEM one, or chem two, physics, math, all those classes. So did all that and then went, um, applied to medical school, applied to two schools. There's only five schools for naturopathic uh, medicine or medical schools and applied to two of them. One was here in Arizona and the other one was in um, up in, C in the Seattle area. And I was accepted to both schools and I picked every time I tried to go to the one in Seattle because I said, well, I'm, I will always lived on water, right? In Sweden, always water. Stockholm is on water and then lived in Boston, lived in New York, lived in Los Angeles, lived in San Francisco. So I'm always by a big body of water. And I was drawn to the Seattle school because it was on the coast. And every time I decided that I was going to go to Seattle, I would be awake. The spirit world would wake me up every night. And then I would, I would give up and I said, okay, fine. 
I'll go to the one in, in Arizona, even though it's in the desert. And then they would let me sleep. And then I would start hesitating again and say, no, I don't know if I can do the desert. Let me, I'm just going to, I'm going to go to the one in Seattle. And then again, I'll be awake every night. And <laughs> until finally I said, all right, fine. I am going to go to the one in, in Arizona. So that's how I ended up um, at medical school. And I was accepted into medical school at the age of 54 and graduated, did that program in four years. It's, you can do it in four years or five years and graduated when I was 58. And then as soon as I graduated, I, I, you, gra you graduate in June and then you take the boards, uh, the medical boards in August, which is three days of testing. So basically you just study for a month to review what you did for the past two years. <laughs> so you can imagine the amount of material. You basically see the material once and you go on and you have to remember it. Um, then took my boards and then it takes, so that was in the beginning of August. And then it takes almost two months for them to correct it because these board exams are given across the country at the exact same time. And then they get corrected. Um, so if there is, let's say, you know, somebody in um, Massachusetts, they throw out a question because they realized that was really two, two correct answers. Somehow there was a way then those questions get thrown out, but then they get thrown out across the country. So, you know, it has to be um, e like equal uh, grading across the whole, the whole nation. And so I didn't even know if I had passed my boards and I met, meet this woman who says at a, at a training, because I, I went to training craniosacral therapy because I was just um, working and helping out in the clinic because I didn't have my license yet. And we met at this uh, craniosacral therapy and we never got to work with each other, but we were somehow drawn to each other. And I said, wow, you live here in Phoenix too, but the training was actually in California. So I said, well, you know, let's meet for dinner. Um, you know, in two weeks, I'm going to be in that, in your area. So we meet for dinner. I don't know anything about this woman. And she says, um, I'm a medium and I have your mother here. And are you open to receive messages? And at this point, even though I had gone, you know, I could receive messages. I went to medical school based on a message, but I still wasn't sure you could bring in messages for other people. So I'm looking at her thinking, she doesn't know anything about me. I'm from Sweden. I had a very different upbringing than, you know, an American. There is no way she's going to get this information right. That was my thought. So I said, sure, sure, I I'm open. And sure enough, it, you know, my, she brought in my mom and she said, you have to go to Arthur Findlay College and study mediumship. And I said, I can't do that. I just graduated. I don't even know if I passed my boards yet. And she says three times they kept with just one evidence after another. And I said, finally, I said, OK, I'll figure out a way to go to England and study mediumship. And then six months later, I was at Arthur Findlay College in England studying mediumship. And it still took me a good three days. So um, it was I was there for a whole week. And first we learned to read people psychically. And then on the third day, she said, okay, you guys are ready to start communicating with the spirit world. And I'm thinking, how is this going to go? Because how am I supposed to bring in a message for this woman sitting across from me? She looks like she doesn't even have a grandmother in the spirit world. She looks so young to me. So, but that first reading, it's still so vivid in my mind because I was just so surprised of the accuracy. And after I did that reading, I thought it was just luck. It was just pure luck. 
And then I went on and did another reading. And again, it was all accurate. And I said, it was just pure luck. And this went on for a good day or two. And then I realized, okay, it's not luck <laughs> because, you know, you can't have, you can't do correct readings like this. But um, just to share that first reading that I did, um, I saw this older woman and it's so vivid in my mind still. And she was, uh, you know, a little bit hunched back. She was older. And I said, she she's in an elderly home, but it's a very small elderly home. And there's only about 10 tables and she's in this cafeteria. And, but she's showing me a cup of coffee. She's holding up a, a white cup of coffee. She's showing me that. And she also had a cane and she like a long coat. And I said, do you understand this? And she said, yes. I said, okay, because we're only allowed to say yes or no. That's it, not to lead on in any way. And I said, okay, now she's showing me where she lived, but she's showing me she lived on a farm. There's a big country kitchen. But when you open the door, I, I see chickens and pigs running loose outside. But then I see, you know, a fence and there's like horses out on a, on a field. And I said, do you understand this? And she said, yes. I said, okay. And then I said, she's again showing me a cup of coffee. And she, I said, do you understand this? Yes. And then I saw this image of this um, cake. And it, to me, it looked like something out of a Disney movie. So I kept thinking, it can't be correct. It can't be correct. But we were told, you have to say whatever comes. Because otherwise, you first of all, you'll never learn if it's your brain making it up or if it's coming from somewhere else. And it's just what you have to do. And that's how you learn, okay, when the message comes this way, that's from the spirit world. When it came that way, that was my brain. And you learn to sort it out. So I kept seeing this cake and it was a three-tier cake with whipped cream dotted with cherries. So I said, this looks like something out of a, of a Disney movie. So finally, after the third image of this cake, I said, she's showing me this cake and this is what it looks like. And I said, do you understand this? And she said, yes. So it turns out that it was her grandmother and she grew up next to her grandmother's house in the countryside. And every day in the afternoon, she would go to her grandma's house for a cup of coffee. And that was what they did every single day. So that was why I kept seeing a cup of coffee, because that's what they got together for every day. And then the cake was the cake that her grandma made for her every birthday. It was a three-tiered cake. So, but when you go through this, you know, when you see things, when you're working as a medium, and you see things sometimes in the beginning, especially you hesitate thinking, could this really be related to them? But you have, you know, then you learn, you always say what the message is because it always makes sense for that person. So, and that's how I, my, the beginning to my, my whole journey of becoming a medium began. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Wadi. I have so many questions. Where do I begin? Um, so first I wanted to ask after your first NDE up until your second one, you still weren't convinced at that point that there was God or spirit world. I, I hear you say that you need a lot of evidence, right? But what was going on in those two years? Yeah. Um, I kept thinking, you know, could it, is it true? Is it true? Could it be, mm -hmm. um, and I had a hard time, you know, sharing. I only shared the story with my husband, my mother-in-law, and my best friend. And it was my mother-in-law, when I shared the story with her, she said, you know, what happened during that birth? Because she could probably tell I was in deep thought, you know, trying to figure out, could, could it be real? Was I really outside my body? Is this some kind of hallucination that happened? I was trying to make sense of it because my belief system 
it didn't fit into my belief system at all, right? Because I thought you die, there is nothing else. And so she went and got me the book Life After Life with Raymond Moody that Raymond Moody wrote. Mm -hmm. And so then I understood that there was, I had had some kind of an experience. And my best friend also said, you had some kind of spiritual experience. I don't know what it is, but that's what happened. And I was just trying to, you know, make sense out of it. What was that? But then when I had my second experience, um, I would say that's when I started to really understand, okay, it happened again. I understand this is just something that I'm here to experience. And I also had a lot of electrical interference. So my all my watches stopped and my first watch stopped right away after birth. And I didn't have a watch for like nine months because I, I wasn't well enough to even go to a store. So finally, after like nine months, I was just strong enough to bring the kids walk right inside a Target. For those who are familiar with Target, it's like a Caldor if you live on the East Coast. And the watch department is typically right inside when you enter. So it was easy to get in. I picked out a watch, paid for it and, and left. And then the watch stopped in, within, within a week. It's like five days and it stopped. And I said, wow, I can't believe it stopped. I'm going to have to bring it back. And it was such a, it was such an ordeal because I was so exhausted, you know, because this is when the bone marrow suppression was kicking in. And I made it back to the store and I showed them the watch and they said, wow, that's so strange. We haven't gotten any other watches. And they said, just go pick out a new one. I picked out a new one and again, worked for about five or seven days and it stopped. So I bring it back again. It was, I was, I was I'm so embarrassed. I went to a different target. I didn't want to face those women one more time and returned it. And I said, oh, I don't know what happened. It just stopped. I just got it. Here's my receipt. So I said, I'll pick a different one this time. And I picked a different brand. And again, within a week, it stopped. So then I, you know, I told my friend and she said, it's not the watch, it's you, honey. <laughs> so <laughs> at that point, I realized, you know, it was it was me. And there were lots of other things. VCRs would not turn on. So I would have to instruct my six-year-old from like looking into the room where we had the VCR and say, no, not that button, the one with the triangle, that's the button, push that. Because if I did it, it wouldn't work. And so he would would learn how to turn things on so they could watch, you know, a movie. It was back when we had the VHS, VHS uh, tapes, the big tapes. We would get a blockbuster. Um, and I had a, the television turned on. I walked by the television. This is around my daughter's first birthday. And the television turned on. And I said, that's really weird. And I looked. Uh, and I'm thinking maybe it's my kids because they were seven, four and a half and one. So I'm thinking maybe it's the seven-year-old or uh, you know, the five-year-old, almost five-year-old that got the clicker, but the clicker was on the table and the kids were playing right outside with some friends. So I said, okay, there must be somebody else watching TV that have the same TV I do. They they put the TV on, but they ain't, you know, they were weren't thinking. They aimed it at the window. It came through my window, turned my television on. I'm just trying to think of how could this happen. So I went to all my neighbors and I rang the doorbell and I said, Are you watching TV? And no, <laughs> nobody was watching TV or they were not home because they were at work. And so, and then I go back in and I walk by the television, it turns back on. So then at this point, you know, I realized that. I'm, I'm doing it. So there's, I would say there is some, um, there that this is logged at uh, IAN, so International Association for Near-Death Studies, have 
lists of the the psychological and physiological after effects of many people that experience a near death experience. Mm-hmm. And I would say there's something that doesn't, you know, click because also my soul wasn't merged back in, right? So I have the separation of my soul and my body. But there's something that happens. And I know people there are people when they get mad, the light bulb explodes and all sorts of crazy things happen. But now it doesn't, now it doesn't happen. Uh, but it happened for you know many, many years. I would have these issues. And after 12 years, my watch finally ticked for an entire year. So for every year out, so after one year, uh, my watch would tick for about a month. After two years, it would tick for two months. After three years, it would tick for three months. So I don't, I know when my daughter was about three, I had like 16 or 17 watches in my drawer. And sometimes they would start ticking again. And I would only get a watch that had a second hand on it because it was the only way I would know it was actually working. So when the kids asked me, you know, what time is it? I would have to wait, look at my watch, make sure the second hand was moving and then say what time it was. And so, and then sometimes some of the watches would start working so I could wear them for another week. So I would just look and see if there was one working. So that was just my existence um, for many years and all these different things happening in electrical interference. Interesting. So you've had a lot of visions. I'm sure you still get them, whether it's um, a vision of what's to come or someone passing away. What are your thoughts on fate and free will and our ability to perhaps shift timelines or create our own reality? How, what are your thoughts on those two things? Um, I think we incarnate um, with certain experiences that were to have certain experiences because there are times there are times when things just seem too planned and when you see things before they happen um it doesn't matter how how hard I try to make to shift that from not happening it it's not going to change because I think that you know our life we come in and we have a timestamp on our head, you know, this is my expiration date, this date, this time. Um, or maybe we have several expiration dates, depending on if we got everything done or not. Um, but then other people talk about, you know, I have an at this was one of my outs that have had near death experiences. And I've heard them talk about saying I had a choice. I could I could stay or I could go back at this point. And so they're giving different outs. Uh now I didn't have a choice. So maybe my path or my incarnation is just different but I think we incarnate to have certain experiences and we come um with certain uh, certain means to have that experience because when you look at your chart astrologically when you look at your numerology um, you can see that there are certain paths and certain things we incarnated for so when you look at my numerology for example for those um that know Felicia Bender the numerologist I've interviewed her a couple of times uh, and it's fascinating uh, so my life path is as a healer and I have a master life path as an 11 so that means I incarnated as a healer which makes and everything about that number is that is my incarnation I'm here to help other people heal it doesn't matter if people do an astrological reading, they do a mediumship reading, they do a numerology reading, it's always the same. You're here as a healer, you're here to help people break patterns, you are here to create healing physically, emotionally, spiritually, and it's always the same. And that's my incarnation. And everybody has a purpose in this in their life. 
they incarnated to do something. And sometimes it doesn't make sense because we just, you know, going through life is like riding a roller coaster. And there's so many hurdles to overcome. And everybody has hurdles because without the hurdles, we don't grow, right? So we have to have hurdles to overcome. And that's how our consciousness evolves and grows. If we sat on the beach in Hawaii and sipped pina coladas for our entire life, how much would we grow? How much would our soul grow? How, how much would our consciousness grow? It, does, it wouldn't grow, right? Because we're just sitting there. But it is through our life experiences and through the different hurdles that we're overcoming that our soul grows. So I would say, yes, we have there. I think there are certain things that we incarnated to have certain experiences. Do we have free will? Yeah, I get to decide what I'm going to eat for dinner today. Um, I get to decide which path I'm going to take next, what I'm going to study next, what I'm going to do. I have free will. But underlying that, I think there is also an incarnation that we're trying to fulfill. So I think it's, it's it, you know, we like to make it easy, but it's not that straightforward. You know, right. life is a, is a mystery and always will be a mystery because if we knew exactly everything, then we wouldn't, there would be no point in even being here. Absolutely. So I find it interesting that you had all of these experiences with uh, medical professionals, with your health, and then you eventually became a medical professional yourself. Did those experience maybe how you were treated or, um, you know, how things were conducted in the in the hospital or anything like that, did that influence how you approach your clients and, and how you intend to see them as maybe not just a chart, um, you know, a diagnosis, but more than that, did those experiences influence the way you approach your work? Uh, I would say absolutely, because the way we experience life is based on our own frame of reference. So those rose-colored glasses that we made for ourselves going through our own life and are having our own experiences, then that's going to shape how we're going to interact with other humans and animals and the planet itself. Um, so absolutely, that makes a difference. Um, when I work with people, whether I work with them spiritually in a medical intuitive uh, setting or working with patients, um, I have that empathy for them, what they're going through. Um, you know, feeling stuck, feeling like they can never heal. Is this forever? I've been there. I lived there uh, for many years. I thought, you know, I'm 10 years out. Maybe this is just my new normal. Maybe I will just never be normal again. And then all of a sudden at 12 years, everything just shifted. And I took off with going back to school. So I think um, all, all of our experiences shape how we interact. And I would say, yes, definitely they have shaped how I interact. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So I love that you have both of these sides, right? The scientific mind, the spiritual mind. Uh, a lot of people say that there isn't room for both or that they contradict each other. And I'm sure that you've got your own uh, opinion on that. So what would you say as far as uh, how, how they meet up? The spiritual and the scientific. Yeah. I, they have to be merged i think in order to heal you need to um not just you can't just heal physically but you also have to heal emotionally and spiritually there is three components or body mind spirit but um 
it's at a deeper level, I think, than most of us realize because people who heal, they typically don't, typically people don't heal from um, just a Western medicine approach. There is always work that has to be done, underlying work of emotional and a spiritual, an emotional and a spiritual component to create healing, but it's not one or the other, mm-hmm. right? So I get a lot of people that say, I'm really spiritual. I know I can, you know, if I just meditate more, this cancer is going to go away. And I tell them, don't trust that just because you're going to meditate or pray that you're going to get well. It might have happened to a few people, but that might also have been their incarnation to heal through that mode. We don't know what ticket you took in the spirit world before you incarnated. Maybe you're supposed to heal with Western medicine or a combination of you know, let's say they have cancer, chemotherapy, but also using botanical medicine, acupuncture, meditation, and all the other different avenues of holistic medicine. But we don't know what ticket we're holding on to. And now we have something physically manifested in our physical body. We typically need to use physical means to heal the physical, right? If it's just sitting in your spiritual or emotional body, that's different. And maybe you can just open up those avenues and meditate and do all these other things. But now if we have something that's in our physical system, then let's use all the th- tools that we have available to us and you know merge, merge all of those different approaches together. And that will most likely create the best outcome. Love it. So I just have a couple more questions. Um, This grid, I'm really interested to know what is your understanding of this now after all of these years? Um, We, I mean, everything is connected uh, to this grid. We are all connected to each other. Uh, Everything that you do and say, uh, all your reactions, all your interactions, um, is going to affect everybody around you, whether you've seen them or not. And I work with ancestral healing and I see this a lot. You, it doesn't matter if you never met grandpa because you're still going to be entangled in that web. And I would say that is that grid, that is that net, that we are all part of that greater net because in the end, we're all one. We are all in the same body, so to speak. So if you look at it, um, you have a body and in your body, you have all these organs and you have all these different blood cells, but you're part of the earth's body. So think of it. So you're just a cell to the earth's body. Well, all the other people that are here, they're also just cells. They're also part of the same body. So I'm saying, so we're all connected and we're all, so in the end, we're all one. Because that interconnectivity is how we become all one when you, you know, and then we're all connected up to this grid. So we're all part of the same system. And, you know, when you look at, when we look at the disagreement between the different uh, people and racism, you know, it's look at your body. You have viruses, you have bacteria, you got one, you know, a couple of cells fighting against the other cells. No, I'm going to win. I'm the virus. I'm going to win this fight. But when you look at the whole world, you can look at all populations. You know, that's the, that's one virus. These people over here is another virus. They're all fighting to get control. But it's the same system in the end. 
that we have inside of us. And so we're all part of the, of the greater, um, the greater net or the greater existence, which is all one in the end. I love that analogy of the cells in the body. And truly, uh, I believe when, you know, we heal, we're, we're also healing our, our, you know, loved ones and people we're connected to and essentially everyone else on the earth. Um, and so one last question, certainly we don't need to have an NDE to have, um, you know, a wake up call or to step on our path or to understand our purpose more. So how would you recommend, uh, people who may be listening to this can really connect with the spirit world to hear messages, to connect with their path? What would you recommend they do? I, I there's really only one way to start connecting and that's to meditate. So if you ask any, any person who works as a medium, and I've asked all my teachers that I've interviewed on my own podcast, what do you recommend? And it's always the same answer. It's always meditation and it's sitting in stillness and I'm quieting the mind and just create the awareness, the awareness of consciousness itself. And we are humans. So we're going to have thoughts that come and go because the brain is always busy giving us grocery lists and laundry lists of things that we need to do. But it's just, you know, acknowledging the thought, let it go, go back into that stillness. Another thought comes, acknowledge the thought, let it go. And it's just keep practicing that, practicing the stillness until, you know, you can sit in being quiet and, and meditate, you know, for about an hour a day. So I meditated probably an hour a day for two to three years before I had the ability to start bringing in messages for, you know, other people and get a clearer uh, hearing vision. But it comes, you know, when you do that, when you sit in that stillness, you're going to start connecting. Um, and we all have that. We all have the ability. We're all spiritual creatures. It's just, we didn't get that training. You know, we're just busy surviving on the earth plane doing all these different things we got to go to school then we got to go to college then we got to get a degree and then we got to get a job and it's just one thing after another and so that's not part especially not of the western culture if we started teaching all the kids and they meditated an hour a day in school i think we would see a big difference in just who we are as human beings on the planet i have to agree with that do you have any last messages, anything else you'd like to share? Yes. Um, it's like I end my book with this and it is that we are all connected and we're all one and it is all divine. And so are you. And not to forget that because it is much more divine than we realize. Thank you so much, Dr. Lottie. I really enjoyed this conversation. I will link all of your information below. I know that you teach, you do courses, right? You offer services. So I'll link all of your information below as well as your book. And I just really appreciate this time together. Thank you for spreading the message and for sharing your light with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. If you have an experience you'd like to share with us, please email me at thenorthstarbroadcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, -on -one, 
please visit my website at christinebhypnotherapy.com. Thank you so much for listening.